Oh, hello. I just popped home from the Solov Schwartz conference to say hello to y'all. As usual with these things, it's just great to be in person chatting about the things we all care about. I'm so tired of Zoom. I know we still have to do it and it's great and it enables us, but I just want to hug people. Uh, and I did a lot of that. I also did a panel with Liz Hine of Foursquare, she's GC, among other things, at Foursquare, on how you can strategically move privacy as a function to earlier on in the product deployment process. So what I mean is, if you think about the way companies build products as if it's like a straight line, security and privacy both, you know, typically seen as compliance functions, have sat to the far right of that timeline. So during the whole ideation phase and while the product is built, 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 and then baked, you know, then product teams traditionally have run the idea past privacy and security and are looking for a quick yes or no before they ship the product or feature. Emphasis on being yes. But when security breaches started making headlines like a decade ago and people started having to enter into identity theft watch programs, companies started to realize that security had to move as a function. And it had to move to earlier in that process. So security shift left. And teams started consulting security as they built instead of afterward. It feels like it's privacy's turn to do that, which, to be totally transparent with you, and the reason I know so much about all of this, that's what TerraTrue does at the software level. So Liz and I were having a conversation about how you can not only use tooling, but also use it um, to win the hearts and minds of the teams you need. So y'all can work like pals instead of adversaries. So we were talking really practically about how to do that. Go to the engineers' sprint meetings, start to work in JIRA because that's where they work. Be curious, ask questions. Um, really cool stuff, actually, because I like all that philosophical, philosophical slash practical stuff on, you know, human relationships, really. Uh, when I was reporting from PSR in Austin, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, a month ago, whenever that was, and doing podcast interviews with folks about what they thought the themes that were emerging from the session seemed to be, I did think it was cool in a way that the theme more than one person noted was getting back to basics. Like there's so much coming at us all the time. You have to have some type of central foundation on how you're going to do data privacy and protection, no matter what law gets thrown at you. And I think shifting privacy to the left only helps us as privacy professionals, or more specifically you, me as a bystander, but fascinated bystander, um, do our jobs better. So we'll see if it becomes a movement where, you know, let's shift privacy left, y'all. Let's just do it. Anyway, speaking of the fact that there's so much coming at us all the time, let's do a very brief debrief of this week's news. Let's do it 60 minute style, the ticking clock, because I like pressure deadlines. You probably saw by now the FTC hit Boston-based Drizzly, the beloved alcohol delivery service that Uber owns with an enforcement action. Uh, the FTC said Drizzly knew about some security problems a couple of years ago. Two breaches uh, exposed 2.5 million customers' account info. Um, the FTC's fix says that Drizzly has to destroy any data that's non-essential to the service it provides, implement an info security program, and in the future, only collect and store data necessary for its services. But the zinger is that the enforcement action also touches forever Drizzly CEO James Rellis. So for Rellis, the FTC's order requires him to implement and oversee an information security program 
even if he leaves Drizzly. So wherever he's CEO next of a company that's collecting more than 25,000 individuals' personal data, he's on the hook for the same implementation requirements. And Alvaro Bedoya and Lena Khan of the FTC wrote in a memo, um, they both voted for this, that this future-proof decision reflects that, quote, corporate executives sometimes bounce from company to company, notwithstanding blemishes on their track record, end quote. Uh, Whitney Merrill tweeted out about this, expect to see more of this personal liability at the uh, executive level. So it does seem like it's an onward trend. And we do remember that the ADPPA contained a provision saying that C-suite executives, CPOs, uh, could be held accountable for their breaches. So let's see. Speaking of trends, uh, some U.S. TikTok Users woke up recently to the clanging of quarters hitting their proverbial piggy bank bellies last week. Um, That's because TikTok settled 21 class action lawsuits that were filed on behalf of minors, alleging the company violated Illinois' Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA, by taking facial scans to use for targeted marketing later. TikTok said, well, our terms of service allow for that, but Illinois said, I don't care. Uh, That still violates BIPA. No knows. So up to 89 million users qualified to submit a claim and they received between $27.84 and $167.04 as a result. In DC, as I know in the newsletter, it's like dinner for two. Uh, but hey, surprise deposits are fun. Lastly, the CPPA has revised its draft CPRA regulations again and is asking for public comment until November 21st. The newish enforcement agency has canceled its last two scheduled public meetings. It's unclear why. Um, and you'll also remember that Alistair McTaggart, the man behind both the CCPA and the CPRA amendment, is now on the board. Uh, the date for proposed comments kind of sucks for some of us, as Epic's Katrina Fitzgerald notes on Twitter, quote, so the CPPA comment deadline is the same day as the FTC's comment deadline? Cool, 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 end quote. She's, of course, referring to the FTC's rulemaking on commercial surveillance. On today's episode, we're chatting with my longtime pal, Julian Flamont, an attorney at Hogan Levels, about data transfers. Everyone loves a good data transfer, you know? Uh, Julian and I, just to give you some background, had just been at a Halloween party thrown by my bestie, Coben's wife, Keegan of IBP fame, and his husband, Dave. I was having one of those nights where I just wanted to go sit on my couch and beg my dog to let me pet him. He's going through a teenager phase. But Gabe Maldoff, who you... Uh, heard on this show was coming to pick me up and we committed to going. So I went. Obviously, once I got there, I was so glad that I had gone. I think COVID still has me in a bit of a rut socially, just weird. But the party was so well done. I just want to tell you guys about it. It was done in a quote unquote speakeasy, which was actually the um, basement area of COVID and Dave's house, completely decorated, all sorts of homemade macaroons. It was a murder mystery party set in the 1920s in Chicago. And every single person there was in flapper costumes or mobster suits to the nines. And they actually were committing to staying in character, which was very confusing. Uh, I was Hattie, a waitress at the Grand Gatsby. And to be honest, I was really hoping the whole time that my next cue card would let me know that I was in fact a murderer, just because I thought that'd be fun. Like, when else are you going to be a murderer? Hopefully, but in role-playing. But alas, it wasn't me, but my uh, best friend who killed the man I was having an affair with. The drama. Anyway, back to data transfers. The focus of today, 
weird times because the European Union just updated its standard contractual clauses. The privacy shield is dead, dead, so dead. And of course, we're also waiting on Congress to pass the American Data Privacy and Protection Act or something similar so we can one day achieve that adequacy standard in the eyes of the European Commission. Generally on this show, I try not to get very how-to on things just because I like to have conversations with people more than sort of information downloads. Well, I like to do a mix of both, but you know what I'm saying. In this episode, we're going to talk practically about transfer impact assessments. Why? Because Julian, who I trust and who knows a lot of things, told me this is an area folks are really focused on these days based on what he's seeing with his clients, and it'd be a good topic for us to address as sort of a public service. Let me know if this is helpful, because it is a slight departure from the usual, and it's a little more information dense, I think. I'm curious to hear what you think about it. More of this type of thing, less of this, rather hear more about the Halloween party. It's all cool with me. Hey, if you're not subscribed yet to the Privacy Beat newsletter, we've just recently made an update making it easier to subscribe, and it's not behind uh, a wall. And uh, I have a personal goal to up subscriptions by 100 in the next month. So if you like the newsletter, would you help me get there? You can tell your pals about it. Post even. I don't know. I'm just talking out loud. Anyway, love you. Thanks for listening. Talk soon. Okay, cool. So first of all, um, You've been on where you were on the Privacy Advisor podcast at some point, yeah? With me? No, no, I don't think I was. Oh, this is our first podcast together. Yeah. That's exciting. Right. Uh you're one of my favorite, truly. I I I often am complimentary of guests, but I really do love chatting with you because you just know so much. Like you're definitely one of those people that I know I can throw any question at. Like, you know, for example, I saw you at PSR and was like, Oh, you actually were on the podcast because you were on the last podcast from PSR. Um, That's right. (laughs) You're one of those people I can just throw any super nitty gritty privacy law question at and you're going to know it. You're also going to be able to tell it to me like a person tells it to me, which is really important when you're a journalist working in a, a lawyer's world, trying to understand the nuance of the issues. So anyway, um, the last time I saw you wasn't PSR though. We recently attended uh, a very well done Halloween party at our friend Coben and Dave's house. And you were, uh, what was your character? You were a mobster named Beanie? Uh, that's right. I was Beanie O'Dannon, uh, the head of the South Chicago, I guess, bootlegging outfit. And the backdrop was that we were at a party that was hosted by the head of the North Chicago bootlegging, bootlegging outfit. Uh, and we kind of had this, we had a truce, it said in the facts, but that there was underlying tension because we wanted to get, you know, different business items from each other. I think I wanted to get some of the backroom card games that were in the North down into my clubs in, in the South. And, and somewhere in all of that, there was also a murder that it turns out was actually related the crime. Uh, so that was interesting, but it was, it was a night of martinis and other cocktails and a little bit of role play- playing. There was role playing and it was so hard because like, I didn't realize how prescriptive the game was in that, like we had these talking points and then there would be two things on the card. One was things you should say out loud and one was things you should know, but don't say out loud. 
And I kept just getting them completely confused and saying the things that were supposed to not come out until like the next round related to who got killed. Like I would just blurt them out loud in front of everyone. And the person who was trying to role play with me was just looking at me like, bro, like this is not how improv works. Like you're ruining it. Uh, and then there was one point where I actually had to go up to you and tell you that because my role was I was a waitress who had aspirations of becoming a lounge singer and replacing, supplanting the current star. And I had to go up to you and ask you if, uh, if I could sing for you, if you wanted me to sing for you. And your, and your reaction was kind of like, I mean, <laughs> you can. And then I sort of like ran away because I was like, no, I have nothing prepared. And then a few minutes later, we were all like, we were mingling with all the other guests, uh, role playing. And you said something like, uh, Hattie, which was my character. Let's hear it. And I thought you meant it was time for me to sing. So I just went, ah, and like the whole room just laughed at me. Like that wasn't going to be this question, but thanks for that sample. Yeah, you know, I, I remember that and I'm glad I got at least one note out of you. And certainly in my make believe club, you're always welcome to come, uh, be a star. I'll also say I thought one of the big successes of the night was your outfit. Uh, the red, is that called sequin or it was like a red dress, but it was, it was like textured some yeah. tassels. Yeah. Yeah. You and look great and very 1920. So it was a hit. Yeah, thank you. That was a, that was a circa 2021 costume I got from Amazon. And when I got there, the other flappers, uh, or I think they were all, we were all sort of flapper-esque, were dressed much more demurely and in more muted colors. And I showed up kind of like, it was a bit, uh, it was like, a, I felt like I looked like a cross between like a flapper and like a lady of the night. But you know what? It, I think it yeah. worked. And at the end of the day, we all had a good time. And it fit with your character. You know, you were a That's lounge right. singer. I think there was like a, one of the quote unquote flappers was a novelist. And so, you know, I think yeah. you're, you're right on point. Yeah. Well, that works. Thanks, Amazon, for providing that for me. Um, okay. So let's get down to what we're actually chatting about. As I mentioned, you know, all the things you're super busy advising clients all the time in this crazy privacy landscape that we live in. Um, we're going to talk a, a lot about data transfers today, which we know are big on people's minds. But before we do that, I just wanted to touch on um, something that's a little bit newsy, I think, in addition to data transfers, which is that we have this CPRA deadline coming up January 1. Uh, are your clients freaking out? They, they've they got questions for you? Or are we to the point now where people are well on their way and it's like, yeah, we're just waiting for the calendar to flip? You know, I think as always, we see kind of a range of positions or, or postures with regards to updating compliance programs. And one interesting thing is it's not always uh, the organizations that you think, which would be really ahead of updating their compliance process or really behind. Um, it, it, you know, it kind of really varies across organizations and it's, and it's a one to one thing. That being said, I will say at the beginning of this year, you know, this, the, I, so I call them emerging, uh, state laws. Of course, in California, we already have the CCPA. And so that's just being updated, uh, although pretty substantially. Uh, but then we have the four other state laws that are coming into effect in 2023. So I call those broadly emerging, uh, U.S. state privacy laws. And what I will say is that at the beginning of this year, at the beginning of 2022, they were kind of in the background. We knew that like a big implementation push was going to be coming or a big compliance update push, I should say. 
Uh, and you know, indeed it, it's here now. And so we're spending a lot of time working with clients to figure out what additional processes they need for, uh, new rights, uh, and new concepts that are coming in, uh, in 2023. As well, of course, I think, you know, I think the right starting point is always with transparency materials. Anything that's public facing, you want to make sure is updated kind of at the outset. Now, obviously, the caveat to that is that if you if you actually need to build a new process, um, you know, such as a, a right to correction or under some of the state laws, there's going to be an appeals process. You obviously need to have that in mind or maybe already built out before you include it in your transparency materials. But that's usually kind of what we ask for as the starting point. Um, and then, of course, you know, there are a lot of uh vendor contracting implications with the new laws. And so we're also doing a lot of work to get those template contracts and, and contracts that are, you know, already in effect uh, to get those updated. And so we are kind of in, in the big push leading up to, to implementation of the emerging state laws. And I will say that CPRA, in my opinion, is kind of the preeminent one at the moment, um, just because a lot of clients will already have gone through CCPA compliance processes or because they're doing business in California, but all of the data that they have about individuals relates to personnel or to, you know, individuals with whom they engage in B2B, business to business relationships. And so they felt like they previously were not covered in California and now kind of need to, for the first time, go through these compliance processes. Um, I will also say, you know, the law is being implemented January 1st. We don't yet have final regulations, although it seems like maybe there's progress on that front. And we're hoping to get everything finalized by Q1 2023. Um, and so that would be after. So anyway, it's going to be after the formal implementation date. Um, but you can also think about a separate date, which is July 1st, 2023, because the CPRA helpfully has not only an enforcement moratorium until July, which was, you know, which there was also under the CCPA. But in addition to that, up to the point of the enforcement moratorium, there can be no violations or there can't be enforcement for violations of the law. So any activities January 1st to July 1st, 2023, while the CPRA is implemented, uh, will not be able to be assessed as a violation of CPRA. And just for the practical piece of that, it means that, you know, the CCPA rules um, are still the ones that you would be scoping to for enforcement purposes. Uh, but of course, you know, we suggest the law is going to be implemented January 1st. We suggest that you have all of your implementation or your compliance programs in place for January 1st, even though they're still a little bit in flux. You know, I mean, the, the regs are still in draft mode, but... Uh, you know, and, you know, and potentially there'll still be a, a fair amount of changes and there could, there could even be a, a, you know, a new process with even more substantial changes than what we're seeing now. But really, if you look at those draft regs and you start scoping out your compliance program for those, I think that you're uh, a, a pretty good, you know, length of the way there. I haven't written about this for a while, so I might be confusing my laws. Isn't there a look back period where like technically you're not being enforced yet, but what you're doing still counts once enforcement begins? Is that not okay? That is CPRA. You've put your finger on something that's uh, very interesting. So the enforcement moratorium that I described and the 
you know, the, that effectively means that there can't be any violations assessed for CPRA for activity that occurs before July 1st, 2023 stands. However, after July 1st, 2023, um, the, the data that will be accessible to consumers pursuant to their rights request. So if they reach out to a California business and say, Hey, you know, uh, tell me about the information that you've collected about me or give me the specific pieces of personal information that you have about me. That right will reach all the way back, uh, to July 1st, 2022. And so that is something to consider is that once that enforcement starts, you'll need to have access to that information, you know, leading back, uh, a year. Um, there, you know, and, and then of course, you know, you can give me a call if you want and we can figure out, you know, there, are, there are reasons that you potentially would not hold on to that data and would not be able to provide it. But you're absolutely right that it is something to consider. Okay. Well, I wasn't sure if I, as you were talking about the moratorium on enforcement, I was like, maybe that's like Virginia I'm thinking of or something, but thank you for the clarification. Um, so one thing that you, I think, work a lot on are, uh, transfer impact assessments. Now, that sounds super boring to me, but I, <laughs> I do always appreciate the topics that seem boring once I get into like the details and the people who are really in the weeds on this usually are, are good at explaining to me why it is actually interesting. And I, I have faith in you that that's what's about to happen. But um, why are we um, why are we talking about transfer impact assessments today? Why is that something that's top of mind for you? Well, it's top of mind for me because I spend a lot of my time trying to figure out um, how to document uh, transfer impact assessments for my clients. So just to do some table setting, the transfer impact assessment is an accountability tool uh, that is necessary for compliance with the GDPR's prohibition on exports of EU personal data to third countries, you know, unless they, unless they're deemed by the European Commission to be an adequate country, um, you know, or formally if, if they were recognized under privacy shield, which was really just another type of, of adequacy decision. But essentially you need the transfer impact assessment. Uh, so that when you're using a transfer mechanism that's approved for valid transfers of EU personal data, for example, to the U.S., uh, you need to have that in place to ensure that the laws of the recipient country, again, for example, the U.S., uh, don't impinge on the protections that those that the transfer mechanism provides. And so essentially the transfer mechanism, so either standard contractual clauses or binding corporate rules if, if you're at a bigger company, you know, that's been able to implement those, um, basically track the requirements or they implement um, similar restrictions to the GDPR on processing data, which is a way to ensure that as data travels abroad or outside of the EU, uh, you know, the data is still subject to those high level of protections uh, and that European fundamental rights are protected. In, in 2020, so in, in July of 2020, the European Court of Justice invalidated the privacy shield. So let's set that aside for a second because it's, it's kind of a whole can of worms. Uh, but as part of that decision, they recognized that standard contractual clauses, you know, which are standard clauses adopted by the European Commission for use when transferring data outside of the EU, um, were valid in principle, but 
they highlighted, and I like to say highlighted instead of created an obligation because the obligation kind of was already there, but they highlighted an obligation that the exporters of the data, so the entity based in the EU that's sending the data to a third country, would assess the laws of the third country uh, to make sure that they didn't in some way you know, limit the protections that the transfer mechanism created. And so, you know, this can, this can be kind of a substantial document, documentation effort, which I think we're going to talk about in a bit. I think it's top of mind still now, you know, two years on, because in June 2021, the European Commission adopted new standard contractual clauses, um, which was kind of an update, first of all, to recognize the, the new legal framework in the EU, the GDPR. Uh, but also to address some of the concerns that the European Court of Justice had. Um, and so since June 2021, you know, my clients and companies, um, you know, who and companies, you know, all over who were exporting data from the EU went through this effort to update their vendor contracts and their and their contracts with customers that contemplated transferring EU personal data to, to third countries um, so that they incorporated the new SECs. And there were two deadlines. One deadline was in September, um, and that was to update, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, that was to include the SECs in any new contract. Now, a more important deadline is still coming. It's December 27th, believe it or not, December God. 27th of this year. That's uh, yeah, to update existing contracts. So contracts that were in place before the new SECs were released, to continue using SECs, they will have to adopt the new version uh, by that date. And because of that, you know, as companies are going through the process of updating their SECs, they're also taking that opportunity as as they should and, and really legally as they're required to, uh, to document these transfer impact assessments. So do you have to go back through, we're going to talk about the documentation, but that's a heavy lift, right? You've got to go back to anyone that you're working with and do some some checks and balances there and make sure that they're compliant as well. I mean, Angelique, there there are there are companies, you know, big companies, but even medium companies that have hundreds or thousands of vendor contracts in the field. Um and so well, I don't know why I said in the field, they have them documented internally, but they've got live contracts, let's say. Um, and so, as you say, it is a big lift, first of all, to identify those contracts. Anybody who's working in-house knows that even just that, you know, can be a burden. Um, and then to determine what, con- you know, what terms are needed in there, like to determine if there is actually export, if there are exports of EU personal data. Um, and then, also to to kind of re you know we could say renegotiate or readopt the updated contract with the SECs right all of that has to be done um, through kind of a correspondence and a notification depending on how the contract is structured with the other party and so indeed it, it's a huge lift um, I, I will also say that in a lot of cases or let's say a, a lot of companies are using services by really big providers you know think about Companies that that use storage services that are based overseas, um, or even you know uh, software as a service, but with uh, with a provider that's maybe based somewhere else, and so the data is going to travel. And those really big providers will have standardized contracts that they just publish, and 
And so those contracts kind of are going to be updated anyway. Um, and there'll be some kind of notification procedure or, or some kind of click through approval. Uh, but it, as you say, it, it is a really big lift. Um, and it's also, I think, requiring companies to rethink how they're tracking their vendor relationships, also to make sure that their data mapping is appropriate so that next time they have to go through an uplift like this, uh, you know, they're not scrambling to figure out what data they have and where it's going and all these things. So it's, it's substantial. And if we had a federal privacy law, and if Privacy Shield wasn't dead, not that everyone was using Privacy Shield, but those who were, then this would be much less of a headache, right? Well, Angelique, you're opening a, a can of worms here. So I like to uh, get lucky. Well, okay, okay, let's take a step back. So the GDPR has this baseline prohibition on transferring data from the European Union, personal data from the European Union to a third country. And then there are a handful of mechanisms that can be used to overcome that prohibition. One of them is where the European Commission has determined that the laws in the recipient jurisdiction are adequate. And what that means is that they're essentially equivalent to the laws uh, in the European Union. So essentially equivalent to GDPR. And what that means is that, you know, they respect necessity and proportionality. Um, and they have, you know, opportunities for redress so that individuals can, uh, you know, can take action when they feel that their rights have been violated and all of these things. So there's this adequacy mechanism that is in the hands of the European Commission. Um, and so at the moment, I think there are 14 countries that that the European Commission have determined to be adequate. And so EU personal data can travel from the EU to those countries, countries like, you know, uh, Japan, South Korea, Israel, the UK, you know, which is another can of worms. But post-Brexit, you know, you, the UK now is outside the EU, but it has been deemed adequate. Um, and so really what the Privacy Shield decision was, I'm sorry, what the, what the privacy shield was, was a, an additional agreement between the governments in the U.S. and the EU, um, creating a certification mechanism that companies could say, yes, you know, you have these seven principles in the privacy shield. We certify that we follow those principles. Um, and the European Commission determined that using the privacy shield as a transfer mechanism was adequate. And so that's what was invalidated. And so coming back around to your question, you said if there was a federal privacy law in the U.S. Well, if there was a federal privacy law in the U.S., we can start to think about whether the U.S. itself would be eligible for an adequacy determination, uh, because we can imagine that a lot of the protections under the federal law would kind of track or be similar to what we see under the GDPR. Uh, there, there is a big issue here, which has kind of been at the center of the debate or the controversy um, and was at the center of the European Court of Justice's Trump's two ruling that invalidated the privacy shield, which are national surveillance practices in the U.S. Um, I think you know, the, the current administration, so President Biden's administration has done us a big favor in adopting recently, I think on October 7th, um, the new executive order for, uh, enhancing protections 
uh, and signals intelligence collection. And basically what the executive order does is require it, it, it adds a layer on top of, of all of the U.S. laws that kind of allow or restrict um, access to personal data by national surveillance or by intelligence authorities. Um, it adds a layer on top of that by requiring, you know, requiring them to, to limit their collection in certain ways. And really the, the ways that they're limited are scoped, um, to, to EU law because that, that was the issue they were solving for. So things like limiting bulk collection, requiring data minimization, uh, requiring, you know, necessity, you know, re- like for example, requiring that, um, the, the intelligence gathering activities are necessary for a legitimate objective, you know, and those are predefined surveillance goals. Um, and so hopefully that's going to, and, and there's a second kind of piece to the EO, which is creating this whole redress mechanism, but that's not yet in effect. Um, but in terms of, in terms of creating these protections against uh, disproportionate access, you know, by government actors, um, I think that does take us a, a, a long way there um, in terms of maybe one day being able to be adequate uh, if we did have, you know, the additional protections that a federal law would bring. Do you, I mean, I think it's really interesting that Biden issued that executive order because I kept thinking for the longest time that we're not going to be able to bridge the gap between what Europe wants our intelligence agencies to do or not do and what our intelligence agencies say they need to do. Um, and so my thought was, like, you're never going to get intelligence agencies to willingly give up some of those powers, and it's never going to be negotiated into a federal law because it's just such a contentious issue. It's the whole, like, you know, safety over privacy thing. Um, so the executive order, though, sort of, circumvents having to do it legislatively, right? It's just like, this is the way it's going to be done. Well, <laughs> okay, well, we're going to get into into kind of complicated territory here. But basically, um, you know, the separation of powers in the U.S. dictates, it, like one of the things it dictates is that areas of national security are designated to the executive, so the president. Um, and Congress could restrict surveillance authorities, uh, you know, through legislation. They, you know, everybody talks about how FISA 702 allows for collection of data, but we can't forget that actually FISA 702 actually impl- it also implements um, a really complicated system of, of checks on surveillance authorities. You know, now whether those were, you know, followed to the T uh, leading up to the Snowden revelations, I think is something that can be debated. And even if those protections are sufficient, um, with regards to European fundamental rights, I think can also be debated. But those laws do restrict in some way intelligence gathering activities. Um, so Congress does have the ability to do that. I think what we have here is because National security is, is a kind of more in the gamut of the executive's authority. Uh, President Biden was able to issue, you know, these, these additional restrictions that are compulsory on, um, on the intelligence community in the U.S., you know, requiring them to follow, um, or, or to at least comply with these constraints on their power, 
when they pursue uh, personal data. And so we don't know what the talks are. I'm going to get us back on track for what we're actually supposed to be talking about, but these are real questions. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the we don't know what happens behind closed diplomatic doors, but you know, we keep on trying to nudge towards what the European Union would like us to do with, uh, or the protections the European Union would like us to put around their citizens' data. And then, you know, Schrems will come in and be like, nah, uh, <laughs> that's still not good enough. So ostensibly, the conversations that have been happening overseas, um, the Biden plan one would think gets us to where we need to be in terms of EU satisfaction with the abilities of intelligence agencies to spy on data? Well, I think I'm not the right person to opine on that. Um, I Ultimately, it will be, in this case, the European Court of Justice that will decide, and I'm sure there's going to be a Schrems 3 challenge. Uh, but what I can say is that the new executive order takes us uh, a good part of the way there. So really there, there have been, um, executive level protections or constraints on, um, on intelligence gathering activities, you know, executive order 12333, which is, is cited often in, in European circles as an executive order that allows, you know, intelligence, uh, um, agencies in the intelligence community to go and get data. Well, it also constrains their activities, right? There are, there are like baseline constraints in there on what they can and can't do. Um, in addition to that, President Obama issued president, presidential privacy directive, um, 28, which, you know, was one of the things cited in the European Commission's adequacy decision for the privacy shield. So the thing that got invalidated, but the European Commission found that presidential policy directive 28, you know, contained those kind of EU style protections, uh, you know, because they, they, they implemented minimization obligations, right? They limited the length of time that intelligence uh, agencies in the intelligence community could retain data and some other protections. The, the new executive order is kind of a response to the European, the European Court of Justice saying that wasn't sufficient. And it goes much further. So now we have constraints even at the collection stage of um, of intelligence gathering. We have explicit references to necessity and proportionality, which are kind of, you know, the key the key element that uh, the European Court of Justice complained of in Schrems too. It, so, and uh, I'll be frank, there are also some shortcomings that I think are going to be highlighted in the next couple of years. One thing is it still allows for bulk collection, but it only allows for bulk collection of personal data in specific circumstances. So that's, you know, another constraint. Um, so, you know, we have to think about where, where we were and where we are now after the executive order and the protections are much more substantial. They also put U.S. persons and non-U.S. persons, so EU, you know, EU individuals on equal footing with respect to how this information is collected. You know, so the, the constraint is the same for a U.S. individual if the personal data relates to a U.S. individual or to an EU individual. 
And then, and so we're also only at the kind of the first level of the executive order, which are the additional principles it's implementing. We can't forget that even if it's not yet implemented, it does contemplate and it, it directs, you know, the, the attorney general in, on one hand and the uh, director of national intelligence on the other to implement these, these really valuable review and redress mechanisms, right? There, there's, um, oversight and then there's also like a court for appeals. Um, so my view is that it's really helpful and coming back to the transfer impact assessment discussion, I think that's another reason that this is front of mind right now is because, you know, we've all been pulling our hair out. Uh, I guess people can't see me, but I don't have any hair, but probably because I pulled it out documenting TIAs, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out how, how we could come to the conclusion that transfers to the U.S., which is the exact thing that the European Court of Justice complained about, would be adequate, you know, with with the additional protections that come from the standard contractual clauses and supplementary measures. Um, and and the executive order has these principles that are already implemented. They take effect now. They are constraining intelligence community, you know, activities now. And so companies can think about whether it makes sense to already add those into their transfer impact assessments. And I think the, the only real, I think it's a no brainer except for cost, right? They can, these can be pretty expensive to update. And then, and then the second element is that we still have the redress mechanism, which is probably the more important piece of this, um, that is not yet in effect. And that will be implemented, you know, sometime in the future, hopefully soon. Okay, so let's help people out now who are working on their updating their TIAs. Anyone call them TIA? <coughs> or just it's a TIA. We're not going TIA. Probably the same people who call CPRA CIPRA, but I won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't talk about those people. They drive me crazy. Um, okay. So let's help people out, um, but let's do it. Let's give them kind of a high level without getting too into the weeds because sometimes people are listening to the podcast while they're working out or driving and may not have a pen. But if I am working on um, my TIA, what type of information do I need to make sure that I'm documenting, broadly speaking? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think is actually the most practical value that we can bring um, that we can bring out to to listeners. You know, and this is something I can, I can talk more about. People can call me, um, or maybe we can do a webinar where we can put this up on the screen. But at a, at a high level, the transfer impact assessment needs to contain two things. It needs to contain a summary of the relevant laws in the third country where data is going to. Uh, so let's use the U.S. as a use case here. So you're transferring, you know, you have an office, let's say in Paris, um, and you have personnel there and to administer payroll and to, and to do their benefits and all of that, you're transferring data to uh, a cloud service provider that's based in the U.S. So you have data that's going from Paris, um, you know, to a data center in the U.S. And that is an export of EU personal data. So you've put in place standard contractual clauses between you and your vendor who's importing the data. And now you need to do a TIA. The two things that you need to include in the TIA are first, as I said before, the summary of the surveillance and other laws that allow for government access in the U.S. That's one, just a summary of those laws. And the second is an assessment of how 
those laws that you've just summarized affect your transfers. And to do that, you need to document some information about your transfers. Um, I, I won't give the whole list here, you know, because you mentioned people might be driving or whatever, but things like the type of transfer, right? If it's going to a vendor or to another organization, uh, the nature and purpose of the transfer, the kind of, the kind of data that's being transferred and who it relates to. So those are the types of things you need to document so that later you can kind of give a valid assessment of how the laws in the U.S. will impact your protection of that data when it's being transferred. Um, you, you know, and you can go and you probably need to go one step further and you can also get information from your importer, uh, that will affect your assessment. And those are things like whether the importer is subject to surveillance laws. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of focus on FISA 702 because it was that issue in Schrems too. Um, but actually, you know, FISA 702 only applies to electronic communication service providers. And it's kind of a limited set um, of, of types of vendors that you might be sending data to. So if they're not covered, you know, that's obviously helpful um, because they won't be subject to access requests. You can also document whether they have in practice ever received that type of request, like even if they are covered. That's another helpful data point. And you can also document what kind of protections they have in place in the event that they do, you know, that there is a request. So do they have a good response policy where they're going to be assessing the validity of the government's request and, and things like that? And so you mentioned that we shouldn't give a list. So I, I named a couple of examples. Those are all things that you need to document. I think the more important piece for us to kind of convey to listeners is where to find that information, because that's the trickiest part that I'm running into, you know, you work with these big companies or you work at a big company and every piece, even of a relationship with a vendor or, you know, it, you know, H or personnel management is dealt by is handled by like five different departments. And so if you're thinking about identifying details about the information that's being transferred and how it's being transferred, you might have to go to like a handful of different departments. And the things that you want to eventually put your hands on are any overarching agreements that cover your relationship with the entity that's going to be importing the data, right? So those can be master services agreements or cloud services agreements or professional services agreements. Um, and those will inform you of the transfer mechanism that's being used to get that data from you in Paris, you know, to your importer in the U.S. Um, you also, I guess one of the biggest tripwires I see here is that we'll get the agreement, right? And these agreements cover a whole range of services and they don't necessarily specify the exact service you're buying, right? So you could, you know, from the same vendor, you could have storage solutions. You could also have, um, like, uh, additional security add-ons to your, to your solution. You could have, live monitoring and IT support and a whole range of things that are covered under the same agreement, uh, but that you're not necessarily using. And those all would affect your, uh, would affect your transfer or your ultimate assessment. And so I always say, you know, we really need to get our hands on the master agreement governing this. In addition to that, we need to see any purchase orders or any internal kind of IT specification that you've done 
that would allow us uh, or, or that would tell us which of the services you've implemented and how you've implemented them. Uh, so an example is that a master services agreement will say, or, or this is this is actually my favorite. You know, companies have started sending these questionnaires to their vendors, and they're like, "Are you importing any of our data into the U.S.?" The vendor says, the vendor responds, and I see this all the time. Well, it depends. If you're using this service, then no, we keep it in the EU because that's how we host that service. But if you're using this other service, uh, then yes, we're transferring it to the U.S. And you, as as the person working with outside counsel trying to document this will not have, you know, will not necessarily have an idea of which one is applicable to you. Obviously, if the data remains in the EU, there's no issue from a transfer's perspective. But if the data is going to the US, you know, then that's something that we need to document. And so I, I always say, um, look as well at the purchase orders that you have on record with that vendor, because they'll tell you which services you have. It also maybe identify data centers. Um, and then also if you're lucky enough that your company kind of does, um, like a, an IT spec, uh, specification at the outset of your vendor relationship, that will sometimes also tell you what kind of build you have and what services you're using. It all sounds like a nightmare. It makes me tired just like hearing about the massive responsibilities and updating these agreements, <laughs> but there are lawyers like you that will hold people's hands, right? And get you through it. Yeah, I mean, I'm spending a lot of time doing that, just trying to be strategic with clients to figure out where we can get the information that we need, you know, and sometimes they'll also have uh, data protection impact assessments. If, you know, if um, if they're transferring sensitive data, they will have done a, a formal DPIA that can be helpful or even just higher level risk assessments. And then, of course, you know, if you have an Article 30 records of processing activities, that's helpful. I always say the starting point for this, as it is for even getting a contract in place or for creating your privacy policy, the the baseline is really having a good data mapping strategy so that you know what data is going where and to whom, you know, and obviously relevant to this case when it's transferring a, a, a geographical border. Let's talk about something else. All right. Are you going to the Solov event this week? Oh, gosh. You know, uh, Professor Solov, I so I used to volunteer at that. I was, you know, before I was an associate at Hogan Levels, I was a paralegal at Hogan Levels. And before that, I was at the Future of Privacy Forum. And in between all of that, yeah, I spent some time in, in law school. <laughs> and um, and so I used to volunteer for the Solov events. and. They are awesome. I mean, the programming that he puts together twice a year is incredible. Um, and because I'm a former volunteer of his, he always gets me a comp ticket. So yes, I will be going. I have client calls all day tomorrow. Um, and I'm hoping that I can go to the comp. So I'm going to miss one day and I'm hoping that Friday I can spend all day. Did I see that you have a panel there? Are you speaking? I am speaking. I'm chatting with one of our customers, Liz Hine, uh, at Foursquare. We're talking about how to get privacy, uh, shifted at your organization to earlier in the product deployment timeline. So a little strategy, a little how to, and I'm hoping people come. There's always a concern when you're speaking, right? Like you speak all the time at events. 
where you're like, is anyone going to come? So I did put out a plea actually, uh, on Twitter, um, begging people to, even if you were just like a seat filler, like they have at the Oscars or the Grammys or something, <laughs> like I would even be down for that. Just like come work, um, on your laptop, but like sit in a seat. So it's not awkward if no one comes. Is, is it on Friday? It's on Thursday. So you're going to miss it. Oh, you're going to be on your phone. I know, but you got to make that money and help save lives. You know, people are worried. Um, got to build those hours. You got to. <laughs> I hear, at least. Um, all right. Well, maybe I'll catch you on Friday at the Ice Cream Social. Cool. Yeah. I, I'll look forward to it. I'll, I'll definitely be there on Friday. So I will see you then. And, and thanks so much, you know, for, for having me on the podcast has been great. And I think I just want to highlight for listeners that we've really scraped the surface. Even when I was doing like the boring lists that you told me not to do, uh, I did like, you know, three items of my eight or 10 item list. Um, so there's really a lot more here to figure out. And there are ways to approach the transfer impact assessments that make them a lot easier. Um, and also that raise the quality of your eventual documentation, which obviously is important from a compliance perspective. Uh, so I guess that kind of is my final note on the TIAs. All right. Well, people can call you. I can vouch you're pretty responsive. So if people have questions, call up Julian, shoot him a note. He'll help you out. Or as yeah, we like to call right. him in small circles, Juju. Juju. Hey, if you pay my hourly rate, you can call me Juju, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you pay the hourly rate, you can call him whatever you want. Exactly. <laughs>